Good morning, Grace Bible Church. I'd like to welcome those of you who are visiting with us. We're glad to have you amongst us this morning. We're glad that the Lord have led you this way, and we say welcome to you again. Please turn with me uh, in your copy of God's Word to Hosea chapter 12. Uh, This morning we'll be spending our time in Hosea 12. Uh, We're almost finished um, with this book. Uh, I think there's a lot that we have learned from this particular book. And so as we enter this Advent season, um, I think it requires a little preparation. Um, there, uh, there needs to be some uh, intentionality um, because of the various circumstances that could cause us to stumble or to fall into sin. There's going to be an amping up, if you would. Um, there are going to be some circumstances that might cause uh, fleshly temptations, might cause idolatry and injustices and dishonesty, uh, the temptation of self-righteousness, arrogance, even irreverence in this particular season that is set aside for God going to be things like stealing, cheating. You might be confronted with these things. Some of us, uh, some, some of us are, are friends with Amazon. <laughs> we, we are familiar with packages and how they're supposed to arrive on time in a certain amount of days. And if things are not as they should be, it might cause us to stumble. So we must be aware um, of the things that could happen. We must be aware of selfish ambitions Uh, unforgiving attitudes, and the list goes on. God often calls us uh, to have to recall the things that we need to remember. And so, brothers and sisters, we must begin thinking now about these things before they happen so that we might be prepared and motivated to act in accordance with our theology and not our physiological needs or our human behavioral motivations. Christians must have godly motives. We must practice that. As we consider our text for this morning, be thinking about what motives we have. What's the driving force that causes us to act and to react in all that we understand life to be? And while we're thinking about that, let's also consider God's motive in saving us that we might become children of the Most High God. I believe Thomas Watson described it well when he stated it was love in God. And I quote, it was love in God, the father to sin Christ. It was love in God, the father to sin Christ and the love in Christ that he came to be incarnate. Love was the intrinsic motive. Christ is God-man. Because, he says, he is a lover of man. Unquote. So if 
love motivated God to save sinners like us, then out of a love for God, we ought to be motivated to live in obedience to him. And so let's consider these things as we ponder the word of God. Follow along with me in today's passage, Hosea 12, I'll be reading. And the word of God says, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all the day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will put and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is in his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labor. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord, your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feasts. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Let us pray and act for God's help. Lord and our God, we, we come beneath the authority of your word. And we ask that you would guide our thoughts, guide our understanding as to what your word says and how we're to apply it to our lives, that you might receive the glory. Lord, have your way with us. Speak to the circumstances that we're facing. Speak to the kinds of attitudes we're to have. Speak to our motives for why we do what we do. Help us, Lord God, to be more intentional. Help us to be disciplined and practical in handling your word. 
Lord, we ask by the power of your spirit, you would help us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. This morning, as you've already saw, I've entitled the sermon, Do You Have Godly <clears throat> Motives? If you're, if you're taking notes, I have four basic points for consideration. Uh, point number one, be motivated by the grace of God. Point number two, be motivated by the almighty power of God. Point number three, be motivated by the revelation of God. And point number four, be motivated by the providence of God. Chapter 12 is about particular reminders from Israel's past that ought to have motivated them unto godly repentance. For example, scenes from Jacob's life is mentioned in comparison to Israel's current disobedience. However, despite Israel's disobedience, God was willing to show mercy to his rebellious people. In verse 6, the high point of the chapter points to the motivation to obey God's command. The people were required to repent of their sins. They were obligated to turn from the way they were going. They were given a command. And then after they would have repented, the people were then required to keep or to maintain God's unconditional love. Last time we discussed the limitless love of God. You have probably have noticed love is the foundation upon which this book was written. We constantly see how God loves a disobedient people. We see on the one hand people, the people of God, constantly disobeying, disregarding, not recalling the word of God and what he has said to them, giving them ample opportunity to turn even in their wickedness, the corrupt states, God still loved his people. And so this this book is built on the foundation of love. The entire book expresses the love of God throughout. So now Israel is required, Israel is expected to observe the love of God that has been poured out lavishly on them. God have, have given them love over and over and over again. And then he's commanding them to remember. Remember the love that I've poured out on you, O Israel. Afterwards, they then were required to wait upon God with high expectations through faith. Chapter 12 uses Israel's past as the motivational tool for helping the people repent and obey God's word. How many times have you looked back to what have God has done and that have enabled you 
to be motivated to do the things that pleases God and honors him. It's an encouraging thing for us. It's a great privilege for us to have to look back and to see what God has done and begin following him on the basis of what he has done in the past. This is what God is hoping that his people would do. They were being called to activate a living faith in the process of waiting. You know, sometimes we have difficulty with waiting. We're standing in line, waiting on our coffee and Starbucks, and we're it's taking them so long. Right? We, we, get, we so easily get impatient, and God is calling his people to wait on him. And so he wants them to, in the process, activate your faith. Use what you already have that you might live for today. Now, let's consider for a moment the four points mentioned. Point number one, be motivated by the grace of God. According to verses one through six, the Israelites were putting a false and useless hope in people and in their own ability to build relationship, relationships with those considered enemies of God instead of building relationship with the covenant-keeping God. You see how the people have turned away from God and it is now trusting in man, trusting in the created order rather than the creator God. And so... The opening verse describes this picture when it states Ephraim feeds on the wind and and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The people had sinned against God through their ungodly alliances. Instead of the people relying upon the promises of God and waiting upon him, they took matters in their own hands and started to lie in bed with the pagan nations. They began doing what other people who are not children of God, they begin practicing their ways. They begin worshiping their gods. They begin paying respect and reverence to idols rather than to God. They were blinded by their own sins. And because of it, the Lord announced an indictment against them. And in this case, they would not escape because God was the acting prosecutor and God was the acting judge. And so his charges would always stick. His indictments are final and the evidence is overwhelmingly true. There would be no room for escape. No one can escape God's verdict. God always gets his man. He've never lost the case. And so here we're faced with this indictment against the people of God. In verse 2, we see that there's a divine promise made by the divine prosecutor to punish the people and repay them for their, for their disobedience. Verse 2 states, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. The Lord's indictment against the Israelites 
points to Jacob's life as described in verse 3 and 4. So in this case, Hosea looks back to the historical context that would be a good comparison for the people of his day. And so he begins in verse 3, in the womb he took his brother by the heel, reference to Jacob, and in his manhood he strove with God. These references of Jacob shows how he at one time practiced a life of trickery and deception. Jacob was considered the trickster. Jacob was a man from his mother's womb, a natural born schemer. Scripture teaches in Genesis how Jacob often cheated people. This is before Jacob would become Israel. Jacob deceived his brother and bribed him out of his birthrights. He deceived his father out of a blessing and deceived his uncle for wives. This is in comparison to the people of God in that day. Hosea is reminding them of where they've come from. He's reminded them to to stop acting in the ways that our patriarch have acted in the past. And so he says in verse 4, he strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. This, this verse points to the time when Jacob wrestled with the pre-incarnate Christ for a blessing. When Jacob wrestled with God, the Lord changed his name to Israel. And from Israel came the 12 tribes of Israel. This is where the legacy was born and the people became a nation. Hosea is pointing the people back to how from the beginning they contended with God. They've always contended with God from the beginning. And so while hearing these Snippets of history, the people should have realized the similarities they had with their patriarch. They should have known that they're capable of many of the same sins because they share some of the same negative traits. And so he was trying to motivate them. He was reminding them of their history and where they've come from. He was trying to get them to turn. The negative traits that the nation of Israel shared with Jacob is not the end all or the main focus for the nation and their patriarch. We know this because we see some of the same kinds of people. The people were invited and given an opportunity of a lifetime to return to God, but instead they resisted him. They began turning back to their old sinful ways. However, because the Lord pursued Jacob through long-suffering, mercy, and unconditional love, They had an opportunity to turn. Can you think of any ways um, you might be resisting God? This is one of the things I think that is important for us to consider. Some forms of 
Resistance might include, but are not limited to, taking a hard stance on something to go a certain way, rather than trusting God in the situation. That's one way. Um, that there, there are many ways that we can resist God and not follow his commands and his word. And so we're challenged with this to think about how we may be resisting God. It might not be something we're doing. It might be an attitude. God is requiring us to behave and to conduct ourselves in a certain way, just as he has required for the people of Israel to respond in obedience. And so it's something we can consider as we look over our lives. Is there something we're taking a hard stance on rather than trusting God in the circumstance? Look again at verse 6 with me. There you'll see that the people were given three imperatives. So what were they commanded to do? Number one, they were commanded to hold fast to what? Help me? To, to hold fast to what? Love, right? They were also commanded to hold fast to, I heard it, justice. And then they were supposed to do what? Wait, right? Wait for how long? Continually, right? Continually for who? You see the process here? Hold fast to love. Hold fast to justice pointing us to the reality that God loves his people. God always does what is right. And then we're supposed to wait upon God continually. The people were commanded to stand still, to be strong, if you were. Now, now we're not saying that that means do nothing, right? So we're not saying waiting means do nothing, but but waiting means being active in all that you can, excuse me, (coughs) can do, and then waiting upon God for the things that is according to his providence. You see, God is always in the backdrop, providentially working out Everything, the particulars in each and every one of our lives. Nothing catches God off guard. Nothing confuses him. He's always in the right, doing the right thing according to his divine purpose. The question is, can we hold fast to love? Can we hold fast to justice? Can we Wait, not for the moment, but can we wait continually for the Lord our God? So if God commands his people, if he commands his people to wait for him continuously, then they ought to wait for him how long? If we are the people of God and God commands his people to wait for him continuously, then we ought to wait for him how long? (laughs) Okay, we went for how long? Okay, so yeah, you got the point, right? (laughs) We're to wait for him in an ongoing way, right? In a continuous way. And this is the type of theology that should motivate us to live for Christ. You see, the motivation is the word of God. In in contrast to following God's command, the people chose to resist the word, 
chose to resist God and his commands. Point number two, be motivated by the almighty power of God. According to Hosea, Israel has taken upon itself the worst of qualities. First of all, the people were being dishonest with others. We see that illustrated for us in verse 7 when Hosea states, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. In other words, the people were attaining wealth by cheating others while nurturing an attitude of pride. Not only was they cheating people, people, but they were bragging about the wealth that they had accumulated while they had cheated people. And after, people, after the people had cheated others, they became boastful before the face of God. We see this in verse 8. There the text says, Ephraim has said, I, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. This is what they were trying to present before others, but God is able to see not only the outside of man, but he's also able to do, in, to do a spiritual x-ray. And God is able to search our hearts even when we try our greatest acting abilities. Even when we try to put on, if you would, God is able to know us. He's able to know us deeply. And so they're doing these things before the face of God. The Lord sought to motivate the people unto good works. He wanted his people to begin trusting him again. He wanted his people to begin hoping in him again. He wanted his people to begin exercising faith in him again continuously. No more idolatry, no more loving the things of the world, but instead they must seek to love and to serve the Lord their God who had delivered them from bondage. In verse 9, the Lord declares, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, your God, from the land of Egypt, who have brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the I am. Here we see the Lord God, who is sovereign over all things, exercise his sovereign power with a decree. He states there in the verse, I will again make you dwell in tents. As in the days of the appointed feasts, this reveals that the people would not turn. The people were fixed on doing things their way. As a, result, as a result, the people continued in sin day after day because they failed to recall the things that Yahweh had done. They failed to recognize the I am who brought them out of Egypt. They had forgotten the bondage. They've forgotten the pain. And now God has brought them to a place where there's rest, where there's peace, where there's joy, when the people are trusting and relying upon him. At this point, the people, Israel, received the instructions from the Lord, but they resisted him. They rejected his command. They instead wanted to continue not waiting upon God, but continuing in doing things their way. And because of their disobedience, God declared, I will again make them, 
dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. In other words, they will no longer have the fame of being my people. They would be considered the people who once was. They would be considered uh, the people who once were having the status as the people of God. They would return rather to a wilderness lifestyle, to a, a desert kind of living instead of being in a place where there's a land flowing with milk and honey, cisterns they did not build. Here, God is taking them out of the land where he lavished on him his love, lavished on him his love. And now he's going to put them in a place where they will have to depend and trust in him. I don't know, someone today might be in a wilderness spiritually. And so when we find ourselves in that place, we must recall. We must think about the things that we've been doing and how our motivated, how our motivations have led us into doing certain things a certain way. And then we must measure those things according to the word of God and see by shining the light on us. We're able to see where it is we need to make some changes or corrections. And it might call for repentance. We might actually find ourselves going in the wrong direction, just like the people of God had done. And we're not to think that we're above them. But rather, we're to come alongside them and, and ask ourselves true questions as to where we are spiritually. Are we motivated by the word of God? Are we placing confidence in the word of God? Are we recalling scripture and allowing the scriptures to guide us to be the rails in our lives? God want us to enjoy the view, but the rails of scripture is there for reason. We can have confidence in God as long as we're working within the rails of scripture, allowing our theology to guide us and direct us for all of life. They must remember the Lord who have brought them out of Egypt. They must recall the things he have done. God is trying to stimulate them. But he's stimulating them with love because of what he's done already. Recall my love. I've already demonstrated that I love you. And my love is without limits. And so, because God was their deliverer, he, he caused them to walk. They had forgotten across the Red Sea on dry ground with Pharaoh and his army following. God has them in his divine care and safety. He's protecting them. And despite all that have happened, well, Moses, why are we here? We could have stayed in Egypt. We, we had good food there. They were lying, right? They, they were bucking against God's program, bucking against God's prophet because they didn't like the way things were being done. But here it is. God cared for them. He loves them continuously, and he does the same for us. What great comfort we have in knowing that despite 
what we do and have done, God's love is unconditional. And so the people who once claim the great I am, who were delivered from Pharaoh's hand and the death angel went over their house, not taking away their firstborn children, God protecting them, keeping them safe, providing for them, allowing his providence to be at work. He reminded them of these things, but the people continue and claim self-sufficiency. The people could have enjoyed the riches of the Lord their God, but instead the people were once again faced with poverty because of their disobedience. They were spiritually poor. As the people of God, we will continuously have to make choices between good and evil. If you're here today, you have a choice to make. Before you leave, you would have made your choice in your heart before God to either come to Christ to make him your Lord and your Savior, or you would have resisted him and rejected what he have done for you and that he have gone to a cross, have died for your sins and rose again from the grave, uh, completing all the work that is needed to be done for salvation, leaving you nothing to do, but to have faith and trust in him Your decision is important. Your decision um, is serious because um, your eternal destiny is at stake. You're going to either be with God through Christ and what he has done, or you will be eternally separated from God in hell forever. And so I plead with you. There's no need for a plan B. Right? God has provided everything. The only requirement is, help me church, believe. Right? We're to put faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And so I hope that when you leave, your choice would not be a resisting one, but it would be a joining into the family of God. Let today be your day of salvation. Will you turn to him by turning from your sin and yourself so that he might become Lord and Savior over you and your life? Do not resist today. Come to Jesus. Believe he has died for you to pay for your sin, past, present, and future Return to the Lord through the means that he has provided through his son. And so what we're asking you to do is, point number three, be motivated by the revelation of God. God has given us his word and we're we're to respond in, in, in the act of obedience. God's people were required to turn from their sins And turn to the Lord their God by recalling his continuous, his ongoing, his everlasting truth. All that the Lord has spoken to his people, including Jacob, they were to recall these commands and truths and they were to live by them. God had obviously made himself known to his people 
throughout history, and they were commanded to keep that everlasting word. They allowed his word to to govern their, their lives. God spoke his word through his prophets by the revelation God had given them, and the prophets took the word of God to the people of God. And the people should have responded, amen, amen. We will do all that is commanded, all that you have commanded us to do. We will live by them this day and forevermore. The people of God should have responded with obedient hearts, considering the Lord their God. He had made it clear that he was to be their God. They should have learned the lessons from the patriarch that have gone before them. So many times God warned his people that if they would not turn, they would ultimately face destruction or a form of discipline from the Lord. This leads us to our final point, point number four, be motivated by the providence of God. Providence is a word that is often mentioned and referred to in Christendom. But but what do we actually mean? Well, according to one dictionary, I think it describes it well. Providence is God's plan and interaction with his creation usually discussed in association with sovereignty, foreknowledge, predestination, free will, and evil. God covers everything, nothing baffles God. Nothing causes God to misunderstand or to not know something. In other words, no matter what's happening around us and around the world, we do not need to fret because we know that God's will is always being done in a just and perfect manner. But I have a question. How many of us live our lives trusting God on a regular basis? That's the practice. That's uh, one of the things we want to come away with. What, what area in my life am I not yielding to the Lord? What area do I still have control over? And this is the challenges that we have. Sometimes we may be familiar with the biblical <clears throat> truths uh, of faith, but if we're not living according to God's word, we are, grown, we are not growing and excelling in our faith. We can sometimes have knowledge and be like the hamster, running and running in a circle because we've not yielded to the word of God in a practical way. We might have yielded in our minds, We have not yielded it in our hearts. We understand it. We know it. But if we don't practice it, then we can't succeed. We can't have the success that God wants for us. And so that's one of the reasons why the Lord commands us to recall the truth of God's word. To say it another way, we must Practice our theology. In verses 11 and 14, the text says, if there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In other words, when we're not doing things God's way, we are wasting our time. It's useless. God says, because they're worshiping other gods, because they're worshiping idols, Everything that they do is useless because they're not in step with God. It says in Gilgal, they they sacrifice. So it sounds like they're putting forth effort. It seems like that they have a dual 
adult acts, and they're trying to chop down the things that they're having to deal with, but because the axe is not sharp with the word of God, they're putting forth effort for nothing. And, and we might find ourselves in that way if we're not applying truth. They went to worship, but they went with the wrong attitudes. And so their worship failed. Their worship was to the wrong person. And so their worship failed, never reaching the true, the true and the God who is able to hear, not like dead idols who can hear nothing, but the true and living God. And we see in verses 12 and 13 how God worked in the life of Jacob. His providence was was at work in the life of Jacob. His providence was at work in the life of Moses. In verse 13, uh, we see that um, by the prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was guarded. The people of God were protected. God had his spokesman, his mouthpiece, and God spoke to his people. In verse 14, it says, Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. For some, it will cost them their lives. But God always keeps a remnant for himself. But we're able to see in these verses the providence of God at work. He's at work in your life. Wherever you are, whatever you're having to deal with, God's providence is at work. And so what great reminders for us. May we recall these great truths of Scripture. May we be motivated by the grace of God. May we be motivated by the almighty power of God. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Um, Whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do all for the glory of God. We're to be motivated by the revelation of God. His word continues to motivate us unto good works. And finally, we're to be motivated by the providence of God. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is for your people. May we leave here with changed hearts and minds, and may we be motivated by your word unto good works, to do all that you've commanded us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.